Howdy. I'm Kate Cavanaugh, and you're listening to The Groundwork Podcast. This begins an exploration of connectedness, looking at our own nature through the lens of nature. Mind, body, and soil. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Groundwork Podcast. I am your host, Kate Cavanaugh, and together we explore the interconnected themes of mind, body, and soil each week. And I want to emphasize that word together. When I opened my butcher shop, Western Daughters, in Denver, Colorado, almost 10 years ago, I had this idea of exactly who our customer base would be and who we were really catering to as we stocked the cases full of local regenerative grass-fed meat. And when we unlocked that door, the customers that came in were very different than what I had expected. And so began this course of adaptation and evolution and co-creation over 10 years, co-creation with ranchers and with customers. And when I started the podcast at the beginning of this year, I had some idea of who might tune in, but I also knew this time that you never really know exactly how these things are going to go. And so my intention was for this to be a co-creation. And I think the beautiful thing about co-creation, whether we're co-creating with our customers as entrepreneurs or we're co-creating with the soil and animals as farmers or we're co-creating with all of the microorganisms that occupy our microbiome and our human organism. Co-creation is beautiful because I think that it is the space where one plus one doesn't necessarily equal two. It equals this sort of infinite amount of possibility. And it's within that spirit that a lot of these guests and conversations are definitely being guided by my own curiosity and some of the things that I feel pulled to talk about in conversation, but they're also being guided by your interests and guests and people and authors that have really captured what you want to talk about. And I love when you drop into my DMs and tell me about that. And this guest today is one of those guests. And so I love that this is a co-creation and I am so excited about her work. Today's guest is the incredible Lily Nichols, registered dietitian and true shifter of paradigms. So often on this podcast, we're talking about how we got to where we are with food, with farming, with our connection to nature. And the other side of that coin is talking about just where we could go, just what is possible when we begin to turn old, old ideas on their heads and shift paradigms. And Lily Nichols is really doing that within the nutrition space. Her book's Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes have taken 
long stagnant ideas of nutrition in pregnancy and really brought them into a space of where the research is and digging really deep into each and every nutrient and translating that in an incredibly digestible format for anyone who is reading. And she she goes nutrient by nutrient and food group by food group and talks about some of the the current information that's out there about pregnancy and how hers differs and why and where that research is. And I'm just really floored by the work that she's doing. And I've been lucky enough to watch some of my pregnant friends follow Lily's guidelines and her book and have just incredible success, not just in pregnancy, but postpartum. One thing I really want to highlight about Lily's work is that this podcast isn't just for women that are pregnant. It is also for women who are thinking about preconception and men as well with the idea that anything that is going to support our hormonal function and production of healthy production of eggs is also going to promote that for men and their sperm, as well as supporting women in postpartum, whether that's the breastfeeding journey, however long you decide to embark on that. And honestly, and I want to be honest here, I think that her recommendations are pretty great for just any human who's looking to eat a nutrient-dense diet, which you'll know that I am incredibly passionate about here on this show. So Lily's work is for everyone. And I think that what she is doing in this space is truly going to change generations to come because it is in this in utero preconception space that a lot of things start to coalesce, whether it's our taste for food and the work of Dr. Stefan Van Vliet has looked at how how nutrition in utero changes calves' preferences later down the line. And Fred Provenza's work with his book Nourishment has looked at some of some of these things, but we're also changing genetics and epigenetics that are going to impact future generations. So I don't think there's really any more important work than the work that Lily is doing right now. And I can't wait for you to hear this episode. For longtime listeners, you'll know that I love to take a little bit of a different tact with my guests that have been on a lot of podcasts, and hopefully I do some of that here with Lily. If you're as just totally blown away by her work as I am and want to seek her out, she has been on very, very generous with her time and been on many other podcasts. And so highly recommend typing her name into the Spotify or Apple podcast search bar. And I just can't wait to hear your thoughts on this episode and how, how it impacts you. Please send me a DM, shoot me an email. I want to hear about it. Before we dive into the show, I want to talk about one of my favorite nutrient-dense products, which is Farm True Ghee. I have been using Farm True for four or five years, and it is a staple in our household where, honestly, I don't even know how many jars we go through, and I don't want to know. It is a lot. Founders Lynn and Kim, who have been on the podcast, are incredible about their sourcing, sourcing 100% grass-fed and grass-finished dairy from small family farms across the Northeast and crafting their ghee in their small Connecticut home front. And they 
have done such an incredible job of creating a ghee that is incredibly rich in flavor. It's part of why I love cooking with it and often use it over tallow. And incredibly nutrient-dense, packed full of vitamins A, D, E, and K in an easy and fat-based form. And so these are fat-soluble vitamins and going to have lots of fat right there to get those into your cells where they need to go. I love that it's rich in vitamin A, something that we talk a lot about on this particular podcast and getting it from organ meats, which are really going to be one of your best sources. But I love this ghee for that reason and just just an incredible addition to the diet. And I know I've said this before, but I keep not just a jar on our counter with a spoon in it, ready to put the fat in the pan to sear everything from chicken or braise some greens to I keep a jar in my bathroom and I use it as my quote unquote beauty ghee and I rub it on my body and my face. And I just can't say enough about it for keeping my skin incredibly healthy, especially during these winter seasons. And so this is one of those fats that's going to nourish you from the outside, from the inside out and just on the outside. And if you'd like to try some of Farm True's products. They don't just do ghee, but they also have incredible ghee-based body care that is specially formulated, not just me scooping my fingers in the jar. And incredible, I especially love their ghee cleansing balm for washing any makeup off my face at the end of the day. And they have a whole line of Ayurvedic products. And I can't recommend them enough. You can get a 15% off discount using code Kate. CAV15, that's K-A-T-E-K-A-V-1-5. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes. And I'd love to have you check it out, see what you think. Okay. Without further ado, we are diving into this incredible podcast with Lily Nichols. Hi. I just want to thank you so much for being here. I, As I've gotten this chance to really dive into your work and listen to so many of the interviews that you've done and to read Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes, I've just been really struck by how you are really bringing us into a new paradigm of nourishing ourselves in our childbearing years. And I'm just, I'm, I'm really grateful for your work. Oh, that's, that's awesome. So- Thank you. I really appreciate your kind words. Yeah, absolutely. Before we get started, I just have to make note of this. I was looking at your Instagram stories from last night, and I noticed that you were taking testimonials from recovered vegetarians and that it had changed the viewership of your Instagram stories substantially to the point where you were misspelling vegetarian on purpose. Well, I mean, I think we've all seen in the past couple years all the craziness that's gone down with social media. And it's like when you try to figure out, it's like, did the algorithm just change randomly and this has nothing to do with the content that I posted? Or, because I mean, my story views are usually pretty consistent, like, or is there something there? And sometimes if you do speak in code, for whatever reason, you know, the AI bots or whatever, if they don't want certain content to go out. But this is the first time that's happened to me for vegetarian, anything vegetarian or vegan related, which I found odd. Yes. I I didn't, I've, that's never, that's never, um, been a trigger thing. Like I kind of learned, you know, early on, like 
anything talking about the pandemic, forget it. Like, don't talk about the pandemic. The algorithm will ding you. Nobody will see any of your content ever. And since that's not the focus of my platform, that was an easy, like, I, I don't really care to add commentary to the mix of everybody being overwhelmed with commentary on that. But with this, I was really surprised because I had a huge response. So I asked for, I'm working on a project and and I wanted to get some more stories from women who had been vegetarian or vegan. There's quite a few recovered vegetarians and vegans on I'm one. my page. Yeah. I mean, I'm one too, arguably <laughs> I was vegetarian before as well. And it was a hot mess, but there, there was a big response. I was asking for how did it affect your menstrual cycles, fertility, pregnancy, postpartum, like share your stories. I was especially interested if anybody could like compare and contrast pregnancies, which I got many of those, but I had like over a hundred responses. I was quite surprised. I haven't been all that active on social media. I'm really lazy about posting on my actual feed. I just kind of share a handful of stories here and there and that's it. But it was huge, huge response. And lots of accounts were sharing that, hey, she's asking for stories. Lots of you are recovered vegan. Go and share your story. So I got all sorts of new people sharing stories. And then when I went to share them, it's like suddenly my story views are cut probably tenfold at least eightfold what they normally are. And almost nobody saw the stories that I shared. So you know what, I'm going to make it into a reel and post it on my feed that way and point people to my vegetarian story highlight where I do have many of those stories saved because nobody saw it. Everybody really wanted to see it and then nobody saw it. (laughs) So It's so wild. It's just the wild west out on Instagram and some of these social media channels on, on what what maybe you're saying that isn't, isn't favorable. Yeah. And you never know if it's like a specific thing you posted or the algorithm is doing some weird, bizarre update. It has nothing to do with what you're posting. That's correlation doesn't need causation. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. But this morning they're like, they're starting to like recover now. So I'm like, well, that's interesting. It's like, I got dinged for a day and now, you know, so it seems like it's content related, but you can never say for sure because nobody other than the people at the company know how the algorithm is set up. So, well, I'm excited to read those stories. I think it's really important to have that anecdotal evidence as women to hear other stories of coming back to meet and what that means. I know it's a very intimate journey that what we put in our bodies is a very intimate act. And so it's really neat. I've seen it throughout my career as a butcher to have people come back and say, this really changed when I began to eat meat again. And I, and I really felt a difference in my body. I wanted to just briefly touch on how you came to pregnancy specifically in your journey as a registered dietitian. That why did pregnancy stand out as a space that you really wanted to shine a much needed light on from a nutritional standpoint? You know, it's funny. I actually thought when I decided to go to nutrition school that I was going to focus on childhood nutrition. We were at the like beginning to see probably the peak. I don't know, maybe we haven't reached the peak yet of childhood obesity and childhood diabetes. And I was like, oh my goodness, we need to, you know, redo the school lunch program. And I wanted to work in public policy. And that's, that's kind of the angle that I thought I might go. I had actually been introduced to the work of Weston Price before I even went to college for nutrition, which was very fortunate because I was vegetarian at the time when I started working, um, volunteering with a, a clinical nutritionist. And, uh, she very gently slipped me nourishing traditions (laughs) 
because I was probably eating my soy yogurt or whatever. And I actually wasn't vegetarian for very long till my health really, really tanked. I think just my genetics, I like really require a lot of protein. Anyways, I had that little seed planted um, when I was in nutrition school. So that kind of colored the lens through which I saw took in the information that I was being fed because it was a conventional dietetics education background, you know, so everything is food, food guide pyramid and dietary guidelines based. It wasn't until I finished all my, you know, formal education and my like clinical internship that um, an opportunity arose to work with the California Diabetes and Pregnancy Program, which is a, as you can guess, California based essentially like public policy kind of organization that advocated for for better treatment and diagnostic guidelines for gestational diabetes. And it was then that I kind of had this full circle moment back to the Weston Price stuff and the effects that, you know, preconception and pregnancy nutrition can have on a child's lifelong health. It was there that I learned that a child born to a mother who has poorly controlled blood sugar can have anywhere from a 6 to 19-fold increased risk of developing type 2 diabetes or becoming obese by the time they're teenagers. And I was like, whoa, because this is something that we can actually affect. So what's yes. happening is there's something called fetal programming or fetal imprinting or epigenetics. There's all sorts of different names for it, but something is impacting the baby's metabolism, their pancreatic function, their levels of insulin resistance, that's being programmed literally in utero. And so this whole epidemic of obesity and diabetes in childhood can't solely be crappy school food, too much sugar and inactivity. That's part of it. Absolutely. But it's as if they are like set up for failure from the environment they're exposed to in utero. And think about right when this epidemic started happening, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, that was like those children were born to mothers who had been eating per the dietary guidelines. Those first came out in the 80s. And that was super everything. Remember snack wells? Everything oh, yeah. was low fat, margarine, high sugar, high um, omega six. A, yeah, it was a massive shift in our diets, particularly from like the 1970s, late 1970s through then. It was so much more processed foods, so much more sugars, so many more refined carbohydrates, crappier oils, a movement away from meat and animal fat. And what if that was having an impact on these children? What if what we're seeing was like, wow, all these babies were gestated in this hot mess of (laughs) refined carbohydrates and sugar and poor quality fats. And we're seeing the consequences 10, 20 years later. Certainly that's not the only reason, but it was, it was one of them. And I was like, wow, this is an area where we could really um, make a difference because changing what kids eat. I can say this as a mom of a three and six year old, it is challenging and they're exposed to so much garbage. It's so frustrating but a time in your life where you are most motivated to make changes for better health is when you're pregnant and you are solely responsible. I guess you could argue that point, but more so than other than feeding a child, for example, you are solely responsible for what's going into your body. And so you can make the choice as a fully functional adult to 
eat more of certain things, eat less of certain things to manage your blood sugar in different ways. And we can make a massive difference on health outcomes if we do that. So that's what first got me really into the like, whoa, we need to focus on prenatal nutrition. It tied right back into Weston Price stuff. And then because I was working in a situation where we're working on policy and guidelines, I was really dismayed to see the types of things that are in said guidelines. And then working clinically, um, being the good little dietitian trying to implement the guidelines that I had helped work on, ironically, I saw how frequently they failed because they were far too high in carbohydrates for somebody already with blood sugar issues in pregnancy. It's called carbohydrate intolerance of pregnancy. That's another way to describe gestational diabetes. And we're giving them this high carbohydrate diet that they clearly cannot tolerate because their blood sugar is getting worse when they're following our dietary recommendations. That was, that was one of those moments where I'm like, well, I mean, I knew the dietary guidelines were bad and industry influenced and whatever, but like, this is really bad and we need to do better. And ultimately that led me to develop what I call my real food for gestational diabetes approach. I wrote the book um, so that I could get that information out there because there was so much pushback, anything pregnancy, people are so afraid of rocking the boat. It's like, you don't want to mess up anything. So like nobody wants to touch it with a 10 foot pole. And I knew that and I knew the stakes were high. So I went at it from a very like rigorous sort of science-based approach where if I'm recommending different, I'm going to be citing why I'm recommending different. It's not just my opinion. And that carried forward into Real Food for for Pregnancy, which I um, wrote several years after, which was like, okay, it's not just the gestational diabetes stuff and the carbohydrate guidelines that are totally wrong we got to go into everything. Like the protein recommendations are wrong. The fat recommendations are wrong. The salt recommendations are wrong. Like many of the micronutrient recommendations are off and they're just so outdated. We have so much data that's come in in the past 10, 20, 30 years that just hasn't made it into the guidelines yet. And knowing how much red tape there is to changing those guidelines. Like, believe me, I've worked in that side of things before. I I don't have much hope for public policy changing these things. I'm like, I'm going to go at this from a grassroots level. I'll put the information out in a book. It's all cited. You take it or leave it. We can't wait for the guidelines because they may never be updated based on how corrupt the whole process is. (laughs) Yeah. I know that I know that guidelines tend to lag 17 to 20 years in clinical settings behind the research, but I wonder at this point if it will include some of these updates because pregnancy is such a a hot topic and there's so many misconceptions around it. And so I think it's incredible that you've written this book. And I think that your success with it speaks to how needed it is in this desert of information around accessing real whole food during pregnancy. Yeah. Yeah. I think there was, um, much to my surprise, actually, I was like, I don't know if anybody wants to go into this level of detail, but I'm interested, like, I'm interested in knowing this stuff because there's so much, I don't know, fear mongering, especially around pregnancy. Don't eat this and you can't eat that. And that's not safe. And you need to eat this or else. And it's like, but really, like, really, is that actually how this goes? Or are we focusing on the wrong things? And so I, I decided to throw it out there. But I, I, I didn't expect, especially Real, Real Food for Pregnancy, which I wrote at a bit more of a like rigorous scientific kind of level. I, I wasn't rigorous. sure how well it would be received because it is, I mean, some people do kind of call it 
a textbook. I mean, I, I aim to make it readable and, and like literate to the general population, but there are some things where I don't want to uh, like change the accuracy of the information by like bringing the reading level down too low. So it, it's a bit of a fine balance, but it, I've come to learn that people really do want that information. I think we've been kind of like treating women like children like well we know better than you because we're the experts and you can't possibly understand the scientific stuff I think this shows that no actually they are perfectly capable of understanding this stuff I mean try to present it in a clear interesting way but like they can also read science (laughs) yes we're not dumb thank you very much given some autonomy take control over their choices, our own choices in pregnancy, having a foundation to go off of and judging risk and benefit for, for oneself, I think. And you really, you really outline that beautifully. And I think that you do strike that perfect line between readability and accessibility and what needs to be somewhat technical. Yeah. Yeah. Before we dive in, I have this question about what I've been thinking of is the pregnancy continuum that while your books identify that they are for pregnancy, that these diets and this way of eating is really for both preconception where that egg or even sperm is taking 90 to a hundred days to mature that will eventually become that baby and into postpartum and breastfeeding and just the importance of gaining some of this nutrient density throughout that journey in the childbearing years and not just pregnancy. hundred percent. Yes. Well, you outlined many of the main points already, but one thing I like to highlight, not only in the amount of time it takes a sperm or egg to develop, which for sperm, it's about two and a half, maybe three months. Egg quality can go back technically like up to eight months. If you're looking at the full hormone cycle, Um, but most people cite about three months still though, you need like sufficient levels of nutrients to produce sufficient amounts of hormones and to have those hormones in the right balance. You need gut health to absorb (laughs) nutrients, um, and keep inflammation levels at bay. You need your, your liver functioning properly to help process and excrete the inevitable toxins that we're exposed to. All of these things can impact both egg and sperm quality, which can impact your, your time to conception journey. So from how long you're trying to how long you actually get pregnant, it can impact your risk of miscarriage or fetal loss. It can impact your risk of pregnancy complications. I mean, there's a lot of pregnancy complications, which arguably can go back to preconception or at the very least, the um, stage where the placenta is being formed, which is towards the end. Well, it's during the first trimester, but the placenta fully implants itself and starts taking over nutrient delivery to the baby towards the end of the second or the end of the first trimester, start of the second trimester. And um, if the placenta does not um, properly embed itself into the uterine wall, you won't have the sufficient amount of blood flow and thus nutrient transfer. Um, You can have all sorts of carryover problems from that situation, like baby doesn't grow as large or healthy as expected. There can be a higher risk of preeclampsia. So a lot of these things actually circle all the way back to preconception. Like people don't realize that up until the placenta is fully formed and functioning, that embryo is first implanted into the 
endometrium, the lining of the uterus. The endometrium is what builds up and is shed each month via your menstrual cycle. You need a sufficiently thick, robust endometrium for an egg to even implant. If the endometrium is like less than 10 millimeters, and especially if it's less than six or seven millimeters, like you're most likely not going to have successful implantation. So some of those very, very, very early miscarriages are actually like everything was going well. There just wasn't a suitable home for this to implant. So if you're noticing really, really light menstrual cycles, that can be a sign that your endometrium is not building up a sufficiently thick layer in order to actually receive the, the embryo. So maybe your egg quality is great. Maybe your partner's sperm quality is great, but there's not a suitable home. Usually these things all overlap though, because all of them are hormone dependent. (laughs) And if you want sufficient levels of hormones, you have to eat a a sufficient amount of food, first of all, which so many women are starving themselves. And B, you have to eat a sufficient amount of the foods that actually support your hormone production. All of our sex hormones are are built on a cholesterol backbone. If you're not eating enough cholesterol, and yes, your body can make cholesterol. However, we have multiple studies where they put women on low-fat diets. And then we did a lot of these in the 90s because they thought eating a low-fat diet would help lower estrogen levels and help prevent breast cancer. They do lower estrogen levels, but they lower progesterone levels as well. So you can have like 20, 30 plus percent lower estrogen and progesterone levels as a response to eating a, a diet that's too low in fat. So yes, our body can make cholesterol if we're not eating it. Um, that is that is a sign that it's so necessary for life that your body is going to have like a backup mechanism if you're not eating it. But the consequence is if you're not eating enough cholesterol, which happens to come with fatty foods, so not enough fat either, you're not going to have sufficient hormone production for your fertility. So your menstrual cycle is probably going to be pretty disrupted. And that's something that you see pretty consistently among women who have anovulatory cycles where they're, they're not having their period because they're not even ovulating. So hypothalamic amenorrhea, that's Typically, those women are eating significantly less fat than somebody who has a normal menstrual cycle. Even if they're eating at the same amount of calories, they're specifically selecting less fatty foods. There's often overlap with eating disorders of that situation as well. However, some people really are from the belief that they're doing the best for their health, choosing to eat as low fat as possible. And it, has, it, it really does have dire consequences for our, our hormone health. We've talked some on this podcast about how Ansel Keys and some of those dietary guidelines have set off this chain reaction of how we view fat and how important it is to come back to some of these, especially animal fats, that can be so nourishing for our bodies. And I was struck as you were speaking that I think that it's not just the pregnancy dietary guidelines that have maybe led us astray, however you want to call that. It's the guidelines leading up to that. And so I think a lot of women are coming into pregnancy or into preconception already at a deficit and needing to build up this nutrient density in order to have a, a pregnancy and postpartum period where they're really thriving. For sure. Yeah. You're never going to end a pregnancy more nutrient replete than you began. Um, Even if you're eating super well, and I can attest to this, I really did my best effort to eat as, as 
well as I could during both of my pregnancies. I knew more my second pregnancy, so I probably ate even better the second time around. You're still depleted. You're still depleted of nutrients, and then you enter postpartum needing to replete all those nutrients, heal from birth, and now switch over to this crazy hormonal transition of producing breast milk if you choose to yes. breastfeed. And that that's a highly nutrient-dependent process. People don't realize that your nutrient requirements in postpartum are higher than they are even during the third trimester of pregnancy. And that remains for at least the period of exclusive lactation, which is typically about six months before you start adding in solid foods. But arguably, we don't have enough research to say when, <laughs> when that stage of needing more nutrients ends because we have a significant deficit in the research for studying postpartum women and, and postpartum nutrient requirements. But even with our very conservative conventional expectations, it is known that you need at least 500 more calories per day from your baseline just to produce breast milk. It takes 500 calories a day just to make breast milk. I mean, that's just in your body generating milk. I mean, it's a huge, you translate that to exercise. <laughs> it's like, that's a lot of running. It requires a lot of energy and, and then sufficient um, nutrients and micronutrients to go with it. Um, protein being a big one, we actually have some new research suggesting that in women at three to six months postpartum, their protein requirements are actually higher than a typical female athlete by quite a bit. Quite a bit. And I think it's an athletic event in many yeah, ways. What it is. It's undergoing. And as I was looking through your research, one of the things that really strikes me is we, we focus so much on growing a baby, which I think is beautiful, both, both in utero and breastfeeding, which is just continuing to grow your baby. But a lot of this to me is about starting with nourishment for the mother because your body in all of its wisdom is going to preferentially shunt nutrients to the baby. And so this is about maintaining not just the health of the baby, but the health of you and your body as the mother, as the grower of this, of this incredible being and making sure that you have enough resources and, and trying to over resource in terms of nutrient density so that you can, you can thrive. Yeah. Yeah. I like the, um, the bank account analogy, <laughs> like pregnancy or and postpartum are a period of massive withdrawals. You're just taking and taking and taking from your nutrient stores. So you need to be trying to, as much as possible, be depositing more into that bank account all along the way. So you don't end up with like, overdraft fees and and totally in debt. And I, I think a lot of women do end up totally in debt nutritionally, and uh, it can take quite a while to to rebuild. It's possible, and, and many women do overcome it, but our experience of postpartum, of nursing, our mental health, our thyroid function, like all things can be um, supported better when we're in a nutrient replete state versus being in a complete deficit. I love that. And I think too, you know, you mentioned the growing of the, of the placenta that you're not just growing a baby, you're also growing a whole organ that supports yeah. the growth of this baby and then milk yeah. production. And so all of these, these sort of, I don't want to call them secondary functions, but we just focus on baby and there are all these beautiful things happening in the body. Oh yeah. And you can't well. have a healthy pregnancy without a healthy placenta. A placenta is really kind of like a, a secondary liver that you're growing for the baby. And it 
kind of looks like liver. <laughs> I mean, for those, for people who have given birth, yeah, it kind of looks like liver. And you think of the, the, the functions that it plays in hormone balance and nutrient metabolism. And I mean, it's, it's doing its own thing metabolically, changing nutrients into different things, packaging them up in different ways, sending them over to the baby. I mean, there's a lot of overlap with what our liver is doing. And some of the same nutrients that seem to be so helpful for liver function, like choline, um, seem to also support placental function. And isn't that interesting? So there, there is a lot of overlap there. Interesting. That's that's really interesting. I, I've seen a fair amount of placentas because I'm a farmer. I haven't had children myself, but when when our pigs deliver, when our cows deliver, get this beautiful chance to see the placenta in all of its amazing majesty and also to just see the way that those bodies give in lactation and how resource intensive it is just through the lens of watching our animals. Yeah. And just to like add one quick thing before you move on, I think I put a post out, maybe you saw it on Instagram, I don't know how long ago, noting that we know more about nutrient needs in postpartum and lactation for farm animals than we do for humans. Because we have there, I mean, there's a vested financial interest in keeping dairy cows producing sufficient amounts of milk so that uh, humans can take what they believe is their share, right? We have so much data on cows and sheep and pigs and all these things with the nutrient demands of lactation. I had a bunch of farmers chime in like, yeah, my sows need like six times the amount of food or whatever it is. They're well aware of like the return to fertility, the amount of milk they need to keep their their babies healthy. And we are so lacking in this data on humans. And there's no like the conversation about like breast milk composition being different by made different by what you eat, like more or less nutrient dense is extremely taboo. Like so taboo that in order to tackle that topic, like I had to do like a two hour, like practitioner level webinar covering all the research on it and like going nutrient by nutrient, like vitamin B12, DHA, vitamin A, iodine, like all the things we know this in, in farm animals. And it's well understood that you supplement extra and you give them extra food. And yet in humans, it's like, well, we don't want to discourage anybody from breastfeeding. Everybody's milk is like the same. It's all the same, no matter what you eat. And that's simply not true. Yes, you you may still continue to produce milk, but the nutrient levels in the milk are indeed different. And we could probably support that nursing mother's health so much more if they were nutrient replete, instead of just telling them this lie that you don't really, it doesn't really matter what you eat. Like, no, that's actually a lie. <laughs> There's a lot of data on this. And we can talk about this in a sensitive, nuanced way to not make people dissuaded from breastfeeding because they can't eat perfectly all the time or have them sweat if they have, you know, a cookie or some treat or something. It's not about that. It's about how can we best support this mother-infant dyad? And we do that through through feeding them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? 
I was unaware that there was this kind of blanket that all breast milk is the same. And I think, you know, as a farmer, you can taste changes in milk based on what pasture an animal is on. You can see color differences. I mean, it's very apparent. And even, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Dr. Stefan Van Vliet. He works on phytochemical, looking at what he calls the dark matter of nutrition out of Mm. Utah State University. And he looks at the changes in phytochemical and these secondary compounds, whether they're carotenoids or terpenes, or I mean, just this whole study of metabolomics in the milk of animals eating different foods. Mm. And so, and there's a lot of, and this, this study, these studies actually originated out of cheese producers in Europe arguing over who had the better cheese and could they find a better way to measure best Uh, cheese and looking at all of these secondary compounds. And so I'm always floored at what we know about livestock that we don't apply to humans and have known for eons. I I was reading a book recently where they discussed in ancient Greece, they noticed that sheep right before giving birth would go and drink seawater because increased salt intake increases lactation. And so in all of their bodily wisdom, they will seek these foods out. And we know exactly what minerals, especially trace minerals, things like copper that you need to give additionally to lactating animals. And yeah, just and iodine, that, which they'd also be getting from the seawater. Yeah. 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 What a, what a cognitive dissonance to be able to see this within livestock and to not, I just can't even fathom where that's coming from, that gap, I that mean, delta. Especially because we do all of these laboratory studies on animals and apply it to human health. And suddenly anything related to lactation, to conception, to pregnancy in animals suddenly doesn't apply. I mean, it doesn't make sense. Do you have any insight onto why that might be the case? Why there's that gap? I don't think there's ever been a financial incentive to study breastfeeding women and milk, human milk quality. There's been a lot more in the past approximately 10, 15 years than there ever has been. Although it's a little bit questionable, the funding sources, because There is a very wealthy billionaire that I won't name that everybody knows Mm -hmm. with a very large foundation that's working on this synthetic human milk. And I've noticed that that foundation is actually has funded a lot of some, some of the best like review papers and studies on human milk composition and especially the micronutrient concentrations actually is funded by them. So maybe there is a vested financial interest in it if they can just try to reverse engineer and bioengineer human milk where it's not formula. It's not synthetic human milk. It's like bioengineered. It's like lab grown milk. Lab made human milk. Yes, exactly. I think that's where there's finally funding interest in it. Cause I, I was thinking the same thing. So not only like, I can't explain why nobody has thought that there's crossover between animal and human milk composition. Of course we should be able to draw the parallel, but why the, the lack of research and then the sudden interest, I'm like, that's interesting. 
and sad kind of that we could like flip it in that way. So we could use that for, and that's what I'm trying to do, use it for the good of like, hey, look at the rates of vitamin B12 deficiency in infants that's on the rise as a result of low B12 intake from lack of animal foods in women and look at the difference in DHA concentration based on seafood consumption and look at the difference in vitamin A concentrations and how you need that retinol form specifically for it to transfer into the milk. And like, let's use that for the like, yes, we need to eat B12 animal foods. Yes, we need to eat preformed retinol animal foods, liver. Yes, we need to eat seafood for that DHA. Like, let's look at it from that angle. Let's try to understand why in so many cultures there were like specific postpartum food practices that emphasize some of these nutrient dense foods. Like why was there this like bone beef bone broth based seaweed soup given to new mothers in Korea? Like, wow, turns out the breasts need a ton of iodine, arguably more than our thyroid even for the production of milk and for there to be enough iodine in the milk to optimize baby's brain development. Like, wow, let's focus on those things. But of course the actual like way you make money from any of this is if you can create some sort of a, marketable, especially patented product from that research. So I think that's, I guess, the dark side of knowing more about the variations in human milk composition is there's always somebody there to to, uh, exploit it. Um, And maybe that's why there's somebody there to, to fund these things that hadn't received much funding prior. It's very insidious, the idea that there's no financial incentive to support breastfeeding mothers because that money isn't then going into purchasing of a synthetic or formula. And it's just, uh, we've talked about that too. And what I'll dive into instead is, is just this ancestral lens, because I love that you brought this into the conversation and, and with having Weston A. Price and having a chance to see that before you even went through your education, which I think is incredible and having that color it and looking at traditional cultures and the way that they preferentially give women of childbearing age and pregnant women, these super nutrient dense foods, whether it's organ meats or bone broths postpartum, are we beginning to return to that wisdom and incorporate some of that wisdom that I think we've known that our bodies have known throughout time without some of the sort of nutritional noise of modern Western society. Yeah. I I think it depends on the, the group that you're, that you're working with. You know, I used to work in a, a very low income area of LA working with pregnant women and the women who had fairly recently immigrated to the country often were still connected to their traditional food practices. And sometimes I was a little bit rogue. They often had one, you know, one ear was getting the WIC dietary advice, which is government guideline stuff and whatever foods that they would provide them with. And then from the other ear from me, I'm like, no, you can actually have your egg yolks. You can actually have butter. That's better than margarine. Yes. You can still cook with lard. Yes make your, your bone broth as you always have. Don't skim the fat off the top. You can eat the fat. And they were just kind of like, what, huh? They like, they kind of thought it was a little bit crazy, although they loved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I bet they the did. ones who were, hadn't been like Westernized yet still actively enjoyed that food. 
those traditional foods, they would still have their menudo, which is like ridiculously rich in collagen. And they'd still cook liver and organ meats and they'd still make broths and they, they would still cook in this way um, without a fear of animal fats. And I think in some ways, maybe that's why they, their birth rate was higher than some of the other populations. They were still eating their traditional foods. So they would like recover and recover their fertility faster between, between children, you know, but the more Westernized they had gotten, or if they had moved here when they were children and had just grown up on, you know, American fast food culture, these things suddenly became averse and gross. I think we're seeing a bit of a renaissance now that more people are talking about it. I mean, there's quite a few of us like yourself and people in the nutrition sphere and all the regenerative, regenerative agriculture stuff and people who are moving back to the land and raising animals. And you can see directly with your two eyes, the, the difference in your animal's health based on how they're eating and just kind of being more connected to the cycle of life. It sounds all hippie woo or something. It's not, this is very grounded stuff. Like <laughs> seeing what makes your chickens lay more eggs and what helps your cow produce more milk when they're lactating. I mean, I think there are more people who are recognizing this and returning to this, but I think it's it's a slow process, partly because if you haven't grown up eating that stuff, it's off-putting. Like it's people are I'm always shocked how scared people are just from like handling foods. Yes, normal foods. I mean, I grew up with chickens. I remember we had somebody over and there it's like, let's go collect the eggs. And like, we collected the eggs and there was like poop on the egg. Cause of course chickens only have one elementary canal and that's where the egg comes out and the poop comes out. So there's often poop on the egg and feathers and dirt and dust yep. and all sorts of common junk. sewer in Latin is what cloaca means. Oh, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. So uh, they were like, chick like eggs come from chickens i mean of course you could have eggs from all different birds but they like didn't realize that a chicken like basically pooped out this egg <laughs> and pooped on it in the process and they're like so disgusted by it or like the thought of preparing a turkey at thanksgiving like some people cannot handle touching a a, a turkey like it's so repulsive to them. Uh, and then let alone talking about organ meats, opening up, even when it's all packaged for you, like opening up a can of, of smoked oysters. That's something that I, I encourage for people who can't get fresh oysters, but they want some of the nutrient benefits and you know, it's shelf stable, easy and expensive. And I have some people who are like, I've had it in my cupboard for like four months and I just can't bring myself to open it. Like what, what is there's like a distinct, I would almost call it like disgust. And if you read some of the literature on recovering vegetarians, one of the words they use to describe is like disgust. There is like, that is, that is an accurate term to describe. And this is not even in vegetarians necessarily, but I think people are so, we're so used to just getting our like steak packaged in the grocery store, or maybe not even cooking it anymore, buying it pre-cooked, cut up and frozen as part of a, a meal that you just nuke in the microwave, like people are really afraid of touching their food. Yes. <laughs> it's like, 
Yes. It's very strange. Or uh, like I just picked up our, we do annually a, a portion of a cow, sometimes also a portion of a pig if I have the freezer space. And I posted on Instagram some photos of the meat that I got. And it's like beautiful, like so richly colored. And like, uh, you know, I'm like, oh, the osobuco, like so good. Oh, and like, yeah, that's my favorite. threw in some extra organ meats for me. I'm like so excited. And people are like, how do you like cook that? You know, you could just see, even though they're writing to me, I can like hear the disgust undertone in the written message. Like it's scary seeing like animal flesh and then thinking that you're now going to cook that and eat it. Like it's really scary to people. I, I, I think it's just like a sign that we haven't grown up in this animal rearing and harvesting your own food situation or like hunting your own food where people are just not around it. And so it's really intimidating. I think this is so important, you know, at the butcher shop that, that my husband and I have over the years, a lot of vegetarians and vegans have come to us because we only work with regenerative farmers and we're a whole animal butcher shop. And I'm a former vegetarian and wanted to be walked through this process of re-engaging with meat and yeah. needed a hand to hold. And we've always wanted to be a space where people could come to us and feel like we were there to hold their hand from a, from a judgment free space of, okay, let's reintroduce you to this food group. But as you were talking, and I wondered, you know, we have, I forget what it's called, but we have a disgust response as humans to help us avoid dangerous foodstuffs in the mm -hmm. wild and to have, have this sort of aversion to things that might make us sick or, or toxic, this sort of gagging instant disgust. And I wonder in some ways if we've activated that response in a really inappropriate space because these are good foods for us just through right. societal conditioning and and how we begin to look at these and I think w what you said is right that when we come back to raising kids and getting out on farms and hunting and touching meat which would have been part of our I mean part of hundreds of thousands of years of human evolution has right. been interacting and touching our food and that's a part of it. I think that's a part of eating. It's a part of gaining your microbiome. Like you said, with that chicken egg, not only is it covered in, in poop and feathers, but it's covered in a coating that protects that egg and gives it a microbiome as it sits under the chicken. And it means that you don't have to wash it necessarily. We let our eggs sit on the countertop because they're protected. Yeah. It's just a... I, I agree. And I think the more the more education that people like yourself are doing, the more people, I know it's hard and I've lived in many areas that are nearly a complete food desert where I have to drive like an hour to get to the nearest farm to not be buying something that's just regular run-of-the-mill grocery store, whatever. But the more that we can engage in those types of experiences or even if whatever you're getting is grocery store, but like, you know, rolling up your grandma sleeves and buying a whole chicken instead of the package of boneless, skinless chicken breast fillets or whatever, where you don't even have to cut the chicken breast because uh, you don't want to handle the raw meat. Like get yourself a whole bird and like familiarize yourself with this, familiarize yourself with how to like 
cut it up after it's cooked so that you, you know, cut against the grain and make it nice and, and tender instead of nasty long strings. Like, I don't know why that's how my mom always cut up chicken. Thank God for uh-huh. Mark Stewart uh-huh. who taught me how to like <laughs> carve a chicken properly. Um, but some of these things like familiarize yourself with it and, and you can start small. Like I didn't start with buying a half cow every year. I started by like, you know what? I've read all of this stuff from Weston Price for, gosh, at that point, probably at least five, maybe eight years. And I was still not buying that much meat because it had just been so ingrained having grown up with vegetarians in the household, with vegetarians and vegan extended family members, and then having been vegetarian for a period of time. Like, it was a really long process to, like, reintroduce animal foods and then to reintroduce sufficient amounts of of animal foods for what my physiology actually needs. (laughs) And that's a, that's a, a, you know, a humbling process. I think all of us have, you know, our different set point, but I started by, you know, going to the farmer's market to the beef guy and then like trying out a new cut. And at the time, since I was young and poor, just buying whatever was the cheapest was what I would go for, like the beef shank or something like that, uh, which of course is like the most delicious, like it's best, best part. It's ever. best. If, it, if people uh, talk so about like, wanting their steers to be all ribeyes, I want them to be all all beef shanks. All beef shanks. <laughs> oh my gosh! Make yourself a delicious asobuco and try to find some oxtail and like, you know. So buy the cheap cuts and then slow cook it. You can't mess it up. Steak, I still mess up, but. Anything slow cooked, you can't mess up. It's instantly always perfectly delicious. It's just a matter of cooking it long enough and seasoning it enough, which you can even make up for after the fact. Like if it's not cooked enough, you cook it longer. If it's not salty enough, you add some salt. If it needs a little acidity, you throw a little vinegar on there, like call it a day. But like you can't mess it up and you just need to like take these little baby steps to like, okay, well, I guess I'll... I guess I'll see how this goes. And then maybe at some point you'll be like, you know what? I'm spending a lot more on meat than I should by buying individual cuts. Maybe I will consider going in on a portion of a cow. And uh, maybe you'll do so like me. The first time I did that, it was in Alaska. And the the (laughs) cattle ranch up there is based on an island. And they actually do all of their processing on island. Anyways, I didn't realize, um, yeah, look them up, Alaska beef. They've changed ownership, but I think they're still doing, still doing the same thing. It's, it's crazy because they're on an, an island. There's been a herd of cattle on this island for many generations. There's no predators, and it's just like the weather in that particular part of Alaska is like, you know, Scotland. So it's, it's just pastures and all wild pastures. Best beef I've ever eaten in my life, by the way. But that was my first introduction to a cow share. And other than labeling a handful of steaks, everything else was just like bone on and said slow cook. They didn't even tell me what the cut was. It just was like packaged in in paper and had a stamp that said slow cook. I was like, uh, okay. So every time I opened something from my freezer, I was like, I have no idea what this is, but it says slow cook. And so that's what I'm going to do. And you realize pretty quick. It's the same kind of cooking process every time. Change up the spices, but it always comes out good. And you just sort of, you know, gradually over time start figuring these things out. And it's it, it's grandma skills, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You touched on two things in there that I 
I am so happy you touched on. Number one is these cuts are more accessible when you buy the whole chicken, when you buy the beef shanks, when you buy some of these slow cooking roasts, they're, they're more accessible from a financial perspective and they are incredibly forgiving. And I think yes. for those people that are learning how to cook, these are the cuts that you can cut your teeth on, so to speak, because yeah. you just add more salt. You just, if they're not tender, you just cook them longer. If yeah. it, they're not moist enough, you just add more water or broth in the middle of the process. And it doesn't have to feel as precious or as fraught as I think sometimes this learning how to cook meat can feel. And so I'm just, I'm yeah. just so thrilled that you, you touched on that. Yeah. I mean, I can mess up chicken breast and steak still, no matter how many times I've cooked it. <laughs> so Yeah. Yeah, I think, and I was going to get into this later down the line, but I have to now. Um, I wasn't going to pick on a lot of individual nutrients, but I desperately want to because I am, I am a fangirl of this nutrient pick on glycine. Oh, yeah. And since we just talked about slow cooking things, I think this might actually be a good space for it and how important and overlooked this nutrient can be. As a whole animal butcher, I think one of the beautiful things that I've realized in in cutting up animals is that that ratio of lean muscle meat to connective tissue and collagen and bones and all of these things is fairly equal. But what we eat in our diets when we gravitate just towards eating steaks and some of these quick cuts is something that's going to be really high in lean muscle meat and methionine. And we're not going to get glycine, which for those listening is the amino acid that is in some of this connective tissue, especially when collagen is so much of what makes up our our bodies. And, you know, James Oshman calls it the living matrix. And you had a little space in the book really talking about the importance of glycine and even noting that your uterus contains 800%, 800% more collagen at the end of your pregnancy compared to pre-pregnancy. And so yes. while we're in here, I'd love if you'd just touch on this one nutrient for me. Yeah. And to add to something even crazier, I recently learned from a really old paper. I can't remember how I came across it, but it was looking at um, collagen turnover in the human uterus. And women who have had children permanently have higher collagen content in their uterus. Actually, your uterus is always a little bit bigger than it ever was before having children, more so after multiple children, by the way. That's not because all the collagen that was there at the end of the pregnancy stays there your collagen turns over like insane as the, as the involution process happens postpartum and your uterus shrinks down. Your collagen content in the uterus reaches its lowest point at about two to four months postpartum, and then it rebuilds. Almost as if it knows like, wow. okay, we've done this before. Maybe we'll need to do it again, and now we know how to stretch. Yeah. I have a feeling that's why uh, if you've gone to have subsequent pregnancies, like your belly and your uterus gets bigger so much faster, like it knows how to do this. That doesn't always correlate with weight gain, even by the way. It just like you pop. It's like, whoa, well, everything stretched before. I guess we're like <laughs> doing it again. But collagen is collagen is vital, um, not just for the uterus, but for all of your connective tissue, for your bones and joints, for your teeth, for your vascular system. And the most abundant amino acid, there's several amino acids in collagen, but glycine is about a third of the um of the amino acid content in collagen. And glycine is an amino acid that I learned absolutely nothing about in my conventional training. 
because it doesn't make the list of so-called essential amino acids, which, um, by the way, is, is a misnomer, has never been scientifically proven that <laughs> the so-called essential amino acids are the only ones that are essential for human health. We have a lot of data now suggesting, actually, we probably need a little bit of all of the amino acids for optimal health. I write about that in a, a protein article on my website that people can check out. But anyways, glycine is one of those ones that's technically not essential, but it becomes conditionally essential during pregnancy, which means that during pregnancy, your needs for this amino acid increase beyond what your body can typically supply by creating it from other amino acids. There's an actual need for you to consume glycine from your diet during pregnancy, which maybe that makes sense. So traditionally, there was so much focus on these collagen-rich cuts of meat during this time period and during postpartum when that collagen turnover is so high. But it turns out that glycine, I don't want to get too complicated, but it functions in some of the same nutrient cycles as folate and vitamin B12 and vitamin B6 and other B vitamins called methylation that's involved in like the actual transcription of your DNA. So like creating baby's DNA and making sure there's no errors in the genetic code. (laughs) Like glycine is involved in that process. It's involved in the health of your and your baby's bones, connective tissue, formation of baby's internal organs, baby's blood vessels and your blood vessels, which they need to be able to expand to accommodate like the 50% higher fluid needs that you have during pregnancy. So, and of course you already mentioned the uterus, all of these things are very much glycine dependent. Plus it's an amino acid that's kind of versatile. It's really, really small and can be incorporated into a lot of different compounds. So glycine, for example, is part of our liver's major detoxification enzyme called glutathione. And that functions not only as, as a you know, detoxification enzyme, but it's like our body's master antioxidant. So if you're coming in contact, which we all do, with chemicals and other things, your body is going to be using uh, glutathione at higher rates to help eliminate them from, their, from your system so they don't cause harm. So glycine is um, absolutely vital to that. Of course, your skin contains a lot of collagen and it has to do a heck of a lot of stretching uh, during pregnancy. So it's involved there. Um, Your hair has collagen in it. So um, when you look at postpartum hair loss, which is an inevitability, it is simply a hormonal process, but the appropriate regrowth of that hair, that would also be requiring sufficient um, glycine and collagen. So there's many reasons that we need to be... um, you know, thinking about it, of course, you can get glycine from a lot of different foods, uh, including plant foods. However, when you look at the relative concentrations of glycine, it's basically completely impossible to get anywhere near what researchers estimate to be the amount that we need per day from plant foods alone. So you really want to be looking at those collagen-rich cuts. All those tough cuts we were talking about, the beef shank, When there's meat that is attached to a bone, which is attached with connective tissue, that's going to be like a, you know, a really rich source of glycine skin of animals. So if you like pork rinds or chicharrones, or if you want to, you know, your Thanksgiving turkey and people try to be so-called good and take off the delicious crispy skin, you should be eating the skin. 
have your like chicken wings would be really rich because there's a lot of connective tissue there and a lot of skin. So if you're eating whole animals, meat on the bone, um, using those bones and whatever bits you don't want to eat to make bone broth, you'll be getting a lot more glycine in your diet. And the same goes for whole seafood as well. If you're like making salmon and cook it in a way that the skin is crispy, so you want to eat it, you'll be getting a lot of glycine there too. Thank you for nerding out with me on that. I, as a butcher, this has been my husband and I actually, when we when we cut beef for the shop, we cut differently. But if we cut like a, a beef or a hog for ourselves, we actually cut where we leave more connective tissue on than most mm-hmm. butchers do because it's it's something you want to clean off because of toughness. And we've actually gotten to where we leave more of that on and cook a little bit differently. And so this is just yeah, been... you just cook it longer. Like you just cook it longer. I just did yeah. a um a pork picnic roast. I guess I must have cooked one of those before, but I had never had it called that. So I was like, I don't know what picnic roast is, but I'll slow cook it because that's what you do when you get a big hunk of meat on the bone. You just slow cook it and figure it out. I found it needed a lot longer cooking time than would be typical if you were going to do like a pork shoulder or pork butt that had been like separated. It needed longer cooking time, but ended up delicious. And then there were some pieces that were a little bit tough right where it connected to the bone that you save that bone and that part to go in the soup pot and then you make soup from it and you get like multiple meals from this one cut, which is amazing. I love it. And I think I'll throw out there too, that I think actually ground meats are a really incredible source of glycine because so many of those cuts that are a little bit tougher get put into the trim that goes into ground beef. So that can actually be a kind of a place where some of these collagenous and glycine rich cuts are are hiding and something that's really accessible. Yeah, good point. You touched on something that I really love that I had written down here, which is looking at something through the lens of when we're looking at nutrient density, and you do such a good job in the book of going through each of these individual nutrients. And for anybody who's listening, you've talked about a lot of them on podcasts, and it's in the book in in perfect form. But I was curious, as I was reading, looking at the way that language has informed how we think of the importance of these nutrients, that we call them trace minerals or micronutrients or conditionally essential or non-essential amino acids, or if we're looking at phytochemicals, they're usually called secondary compounds as opposed to primary compounds. And I think it's really interesting that there's this hierarchical language that I think implies that these are not as important. And you do such a good job in the book of looking at how some of these smaller players that we don't normally consider are incredibly important and important in a synergistic way that they are working together in their, in their whole food form, not in isolation. And I pulled this, this quote. Modern nutrition research tends to isolate and study single nutrients instead of whole foods, resulting in a lot of attention given to prenatal vitamins or individual supplements. That approach, often called nutritionism, has never made much sense to me. Why not instead take the information we've learned from modern science and apply it to real food? And so I know that's kind of two-pronged, but I was really struck by that. Mm. Well, first to throw modern nutrition science a bone, the kind of hierarchical uh, naming of things 
often has to do with just the amount of nutrient of that nutrient that we require. So like our macronutrients, fat, carbohydrates, and protein, we need them in gram quantities. Those are also the nutrients that give us energy in the form of calories. They're more building block kind of level. Whereas our micronutrients are vitamins, minerals, and then you could arguably go into the trace, so-called trace minerals as well. We usually need those in like milligram or maybe even microgram amounts. And particularly the trace minerals, you'll need them in like microgram amounts, typically pretty small amounts, although that's arguable for some of them. That's where the naming structure comes from. But you're right in that, even though that might be accurate from like a concentration of the nutrient require, it does make us think in our brains that maybe those things aren't really that important. And like, just to give you a quick example on the importance of vitamin B12, which is one that we require in microgram amounts. So it's a pretty small amount. That nutrient is so important for a baby's brain development that like you can actually link poor infant brain development to like maternal vitamin B12 levels at the beginning of pregnancy. It's so I, I have pernicious anemia. So this is, oh, do you? um, okay. yeah, I do. And so B12 is yeah, a big it's consideration. It's a vital one. And like if babies who are born to mothers who are low in B12, like the body will preferentially send as much as possible to the baby so much so that they can survive for a couple months without much extra B12. I mean, technically it should be coming in through the breast milk. However, if a mother is low in B12, her milk will also be low in B12. And so by the four to six month mark, these infants who are deprived of B12 start actually regressing in their development. Their nervous system, so your nerves are coated in this sheath called a myelin sheath that helps the nerve signals get sent from nerve to nerve across the body so you can like say, hey, I want to move my finger and you move your finger. The myelin sheath is B12 dependent. And in those babies, you see myelin degeneration. You see cerebral atrophy. Their brains are getting smaller. And then symptomatic, like with what they're doing, they regress in their development. The baby who used to make eye contact doesn't make eye contact. The baby who used to coo doesn't coo at you anymore. The baby who used to be able to roll over can't roll over anymore. Sometimes they become completely hypotonic, like they can't use their muscles. They they're super sleepy and tired. And even when you correct for this vitamin deficiency, 50% of them do not regain complete function. Like there is a critical window of brain development that has now been missed and they don't always fully recover. Their brains don't always grow to the the genetically predetermined size that it should be. Their, Their nervous system doesn't always recover. So that's something where like, you need it in microgram amounts, and yet we can trace the deficiency in this tiny little nutrient, isolated, needed in microgram amounts, to this issue. Now, arguably, I would say there's a lot going on here, because if you're getting sufficient B12, guess what? Your food sources of B12 have vitamin A, they have folate, they have riboflavin, they have B6, they have zinc, they have iron, they have choline. Like They have all these other nutrients that are absolutely vital to brain development, but we can at the very least link the like clinical lab deficiency in B12 to these problems. And typically they improve a little bit, although they might not be completely resolved by providing B12. So that's one example. Another good example 
on just on the nutrient synergy component is how choline and DHA work together. This is an interesting one. So choline is a B vitamin-like compound that's very important for uh, liver function, brain health, for babies, for their brain and vision development. And we now have data showing that having more choline, like more than twice as much as currently recommended, optimizes these children's um, brain development just from what they took in prenatally from not only toddler, but all the way until age seven, regardless of how much they ate as children. So prenatally, it's vital to get enough choline, right? Turns out that choline also helps to escort DHA, an omega-3 fat, that's also vital for babies' brain and vision development across the placenta and facilitate it getting incorporated into the baby's brain and the structures of the eyes. It just so happens that our food sources, our natural food sources of DHA, have choline with it. Egg yolks, super rich in choline. There's DHA in there. Our salmon, super rich in DHA. There's choline in there. Those things come together. It's just one tiny little example. Um, Liver is another excellent example of having things like perfectly all put together. Yes. (laughs) Super nutrient dense and then great nutrient synergy. An example of this is folate. So liver is actually our number one food source of folate. Everybody thinks leafy greens because folate and foliage, and yes, that's how it's named. And yes, animals are probably getting a lot of their folate from the foliage they're eating. However, it is concentrated in their livers because we use so much folate in all the different processes that our liver is running all the time. So it's a storehouse for folate. It turns out that when you get, this is going to get a little nerdy, when you take in folate from food, one of the reasons people think that supplemental folate is so much better than food folate is that when you get folate from food, it actually has to go through a specific, be broken down slightly by an enzyme to like cleave off parts of the compound that the body doesn't need and like separate the folate from that so you can absorb the folate. And this is a zinc-dependent enzyme. Guess what liver is also rich in? Zinc. Zinc, Plenty of zinc. So whatever folate is in liver is highly, highly bioavailable because you have that zinc there, right there packaged in with the food, right there at the site of that enzymatic activity there to help you absorb it. I mean, you could go on like dozens of different examples of the nutrient synergy in liver. I mean, just for folate metabolism, you need a lot of other B vitamins to go along with it. People are all worried about MTHFR. I mean, for good reason, we should think about MTHFR, but liver for the people who have this specific, I guess you could call it a defect or a variation in the way that their body processes folate. If you fall into that category, which is about half of us, myself included, you can actually help your MTHFR enzyme work better by giving it the cofactors that it needs to function. And the cofactor for MTHFR is riboflavin, vitamin B2, organ meats, liver, richest source of riboflavin. So again, that folate that you're eating, not only have, do you have that zinc to like cleave off the extra, you know, glutamate residues that your body doesn't need to absorb it. You now also have the riboflavin to help optimize how well your MTHFR um, enzyme is working and optimize that folate cycle. I love two things about what you just said. And, and one of them is that you, I think this really elucidates why eating real food, 
as you put it, real food in pregnancy over, you know, depending on something like a prenatal vitamin can be such a boon that when these nutrients are within the whole food matrix, they come perfectly packaged with what you need. And within that, I think you mentioned two of the most controversial food items in pregnancy, egg yolks and liver that are, yeah. are so often vilified and have so much nutrient density to give. Yeah. And vilified for, you know, for silly reasons, if you want to get into that. But um, yeah, absolutely. These are some of our most nutrient dense foods and ones that I recommend quite highly during this time. Yeah. Do you want to just briefly touch on on why they're billified? And we don't have to, you've gone into it in a lot of interviews, but just for people listening, giving them a little picture of that. Yeah, I'll give you like a, they're vilified for different reasons, although I guess arguably it can overlap a little bit. So with eggs, the unless you have like a practitioner who's under the guise that you shouldn't eat dietary cholesterol, that's like a separate thing from pregnancy. And we've talked false, a lot about that way. on the podcast. Yeah. So other than that one, the major concern in pregnancy is that they could become contaminated with salmonella and you're at a higher risk for um, foodborne illness in pregnancy, which sure, like those are both true statements in and of itself. However, the chances that an egg is contaminated with salmonella is very, very slim. It's like even with commercially produced eggs, which like those conditions are terrible. It's anywhere from like one in 12,000 to one in 30,000 eggs are contaminated. So really slim. And then those stats are about seven times lower if those chickens are raised in organic or pasture-raised operations. Which is unbelievable. not crowded in crazy pens, pecking yes. around in their other chickens poop and stuff. They're just less likely to have salmonella in their GI tract to begin with to contaminate egg. Of course, you could just cook your eggs to death and do that, but a lot of us don't like to have eggs cooked to death. And so if you were, you know, going to do the no egg thing, you're suddenly kind of at, at a disadvantage because you're probably not going to consume enough choline. Most of our choline intake does come from eggs. And there's a lot of other micronutrients in there that are so important, particularly among women who aren't otherwise eating much animal food. So that one is typically a food safety concern. The liver concern, some of it can be food safety. That's why I said arguably there's a little bit of overlap. So the concern, the concern with liver food safety-wise is in uh, consumption of pre-made pâté, there are some guidelines that suggest you do not consume pre-made pate because it's a potential listeria risk, which sure can be true, but there's a lot of other things that can be a listeria risk as well. You can also make your own pate and then kind of bypass that because you know how fresh it is. The major concern with liver though is its vitamin A content. And so liver is the richest food source of vitamin A. Uh, we have some data from the 90s that suggested high-dose vitamin A could be linked to a higher rate of certain birth defects. Therefore, it is considered a teratogen. However, what's usually left out of that conversation is that the type of vitamin A they were supplementing was a synthetic uh, vitamin A. It wasn't a food source vitamin A. So form is slightly different. And when you alter a molecule even one tiny little bit, it can behave differently in the body. 
Also with liver, you're getting other synergistic nutrients that work with it to reduce the risk of vitamin A toxicity. So like your other fat soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K tend to work in tandem with the vitamin A. And then the other thing is that we do have data looking at the kinds of blood metabolites that are formed with the consumption of vitamin A from synthetic or food sourced, the ones that have been linked to these birth defects, you don't see a spike in those teratogenic compounds from consumption of liver. So arguably, liver shouldn't be put in the same category as high-dose vitamin A supplementation. The other thing I want to point out is that we have so much concern over vitamin A and the excess potentially being linked to birth defects, even though there's only been There's been less than 30, I believe it's less than 30 cases over the last 20 years, or it might be 20 cases over the last 30 years, whatever it is. And I'm mixing up the stats because I don't have the study right in front of me. It's very, very low rate of these birth defects linked to excess vitamin A. And on the flip side, we're having an increase in certain birth defects that are related to vitamin A deficiency. One of those is called congenital diaphragmatic hernia. And I actually have an Instagram post going through this with with the accurate stats because I can't always remember all the numbers in my head where I compare the rates of congenital diaphragmatic hernia over the last the same time period with the ones linked to vitamin A excess. And you're like over a million, by the way, with the congenital diaphragmatic hernia. And that link to to, uh, deficiency in vitamin A is very strong. We have animal data and we have human data showing this link. And you can check the infants who have that specific defect and they're severely deficient in vitamin A. So we have all of this emphasis on avoiding this particular nutrient and really no discussion of the fact that vitamin A is absolutely vital to our hormonal health, to reproduction, to the prevention of certain birth defects, and also a discussion on like Even if we're going to say that like vitamin A from liver is equal to synthetic vitamin A, which it is not, but even if for the sake of discussion, we're going to pretend that that is the case, nobody talks about the amount of liver that you'd need to eat (laughs) to like reach this insanely high amount of vitamin A intake. And it's quite a bit. And so if you're eating liver in the amount that I recommend per week, which arguably if you're going to eat liver in proportion to the amount that you'd be getting if you had harvested a whole animal. And I feel like that's a really important thing for people to realize. If you've ever bought a whole cow and you see the ratio of muscle meat to organ meat, you can't eat liver every single day. You will have hundreds of pounds of muscle meat left to eat. It's about, to put it into perspective, you know, a carcass weight on an animal is about 800 pounds and a liver is maybe going to weigh four. And, and so that, that's your ratio. Yeah, it's it's not that much. So even if you're fitting in liver into your diet in the way that I might recommend, which is probably a couple ounces a week, maybe at most six ounces. I think some people who are really nutrient deficient do well with a little extra liver sometimes. So maybe even a little beyond that, you're still not going to get anywhere close to the so-called toxic level, which is greater than 10,000 IUs per day. And even that, there's studies that haven't shown any higher risk of birth defects until you get to over 
30,000 IUs per day, right? So you can look at this from many different angles, but let's just say the concern over vitamin A has been way overblown, way blown out of proportion. There's no discussion of like the rate of vitamin A deficiency, which is like 80% of women are not consuming enough vitamin A in their diets. And that's in the US. So we vilified a very nutrient dense food for this very isolated singular reason that might not even apply to it. Yeah. And I think it was striking at the beginning of your book, you compare your recommendations to standard recommendations and the percentage difference. And and those differences are striking, but I think the vitamin A difference, and I don't, I don't have that exact statistic in front of me, but it yeah. was truly striking. I mean, it was maybe 3,000%. Like I think it yeah. was 3,000% yeah. higher. And so, and that was like, oh, wow. And that, and that is not an unsafe level of vitamin A. Part of why it was high on that particular day is that meal plan that I chose for the sample meal plan comparison had, I believe it has my meatloaf recipe, which has some ground up liver hidden in among the ground beef. So that made that particular day kind of high in vitamin A, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't at an unsafe level, by the way, that comparison just shows you how extremely lacking in vitamin A the conventional plan was. And that is precisely because animal foods and specifically animal fats are so, so, so limited by conventional prenatal nutrition advice. So, I mean, yeah, there was barely any vitamin A. Probably the only vitamin A that was in there maybe came in from the salmon that they had at dinner. I swear, when they put that salmon in at the meal plan, that kind of saved the day for that whole meal plan not being a complete train wreck. I mean, it's mostly a train wreck, but they put in salmon at dinner. And that that rescued the really, really low uh, nutrient values for many of them. Yeah. And organ meats are just something that you never see on any recommendation list. And they are just so nutrient dense, such a bang for your buck, especially for women with small amounts that they can put into their stomach at any given time. I know I have a friend who's pregnant and she just wants the most nutrient dense nibbles because she can't fit a lot in. She's yeah, yeah. right at nine months. Towards the end of pregnancy, it's kind of ironic. It's like, you know, they're saying you need to eat more food, but sometimes there's just not very much yeah. room for more food. <laughs> yeah. She's an organic vegetable farmer and all, all she wants to eat is, is meat and, oh, and all of these nutrient dense. And it's, yeah. it's been really interesting to watch. You touch on, and I just want to touch on this well-raised meat. And I think that that difference in salmonella contamination on eggs is a really great example of just what you can get. And I've done several other podcasts talking about well-raised meat can be more nutrient dense, like the increase in omega-3s and in some of these trace minerals and phytochemicals. And so I just, I just want to say that out loud. Yeah. And I've heard from some other, um, I don't know if you follow Tara of Slow Down Farmstead on, on she, Instagram. She was on a couple oh, of episodes oh, ago. Good. Yeah. 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 She's I went back and forth with her recently about, you know, the cow share I just got because the farmer said it's like the breed that's, that's so good. She's like, I find it's less to do with the breed and like how old the animal is, how long they actually lived. Because of course you accumulate more. You think about veal being so pale, it just hasn't lived long enough to accumulate as many uh, nutrients, right? As an, as an older animal. And um, that's also an important one. I, I think it's, always a bit challenging for me talking about food quality because I understand the like economic challenges and accessibility and affordability and all of that. So it's one of those things where like, if you can 
you know, vote, vote with your fork wherever you can. It's not about perfection. It's also not about if you can't afford it or source it, not having any animal foods, because that sets you up for like a very severely uh, nutrient depleted diet. So I just want to also throw in that like counterpoint too of like, we have to also mention that um, as well, because even when it's conventionally raised, we can talk about all the reasons that that's imperfect. But at the same time, that's better than nothing. Just like if you can't find organic vegetables, it's better to still have some vegetables than nothing, you know? Yes. Yeah. And better than eating Oreos or processed food. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, we talk a lot about that on the podcast, that any meat is better than the most regenerative, perfect meat and, and finding yeah. that is, and looking at ways to find things more accessibly. And the great thing is organ meats are, are relatively inexpensive. I can say that as yes. a butcher buying in bulk makes things more accessible and, and Definitely. all of that buying these collagen rich cuts is usually more accessible. Shanks way, are cheap. And way less expensive to get your collagen from your meat than to do a separate collagen supplement as so many people do. Yeah. And organ meats, by the way, the prices have gone up like over yes, the past have. years. I'm like, darn it's it. Demand. People are discovering that like uh-huh. beef heart is one of the most delicious parts of oh. the animal. And like, they're taking it all. And the price is like double what it used to be. Darn it. Like that used to be something that, yeah, I could get very inexpensive or like my latest cow share was like included in the weight of the mm-hmm. like cost per pound instead mm-hmm. of they used to just give it to you yep. for free and not yep. charge you for it. But I think they're, the cost of doing business now is so high that yes. um, I, I get it. Like it's, it, it, something's got to give, but it's also a darn it moment. Because it is. Like, we sell out at the shop yeah. too. Like we sell out of oh, organ wow. mates every week yeah. uh, and yeah. can't, can't keep them in stock. And so the demand has definitely changed. Well, good. We need a more nutrient replete population. So I agree. It's a, it's a good thing. I have one last question. I don't know if you've read, have you read Fred Provenza's Nourishment? I have not. Um, this is a really beautiful book. Fred was is a researcher and looks a lot at the wisdom of animal bodies and translating that to human bodies, that animals have a really innate sense of nutrients that they might need or be missing as they go through different stages of life to almost an acute point. And I'll share this just really briefly. He recently did a study and he deprived sheep of phosphorus and he was measuring their serum, their blood serum levels of phosphorus and they weren't going down and he couldn't figure out where they would have been getting phosphorus within the context of this study until he realized that they were actually reaching across the fence and eating the droppings of sheep that were being given phosphorus and receiving phosphorus that way. And so he talks about this ability of, of an organism, you know, mostly he works with goats and sheep in livestock settings to have this nutritional wisdom and to be able to select foods. And one thing I really loved that you did the end of Real Food for Pregnancy is you talked about a hunger awareness exercise and this sort of list of it, almost a meditation of questions about fullness and about cravings and about satiety. And I was really struck by that because I think that we are capable of reaching this body wisdom, but we're missing some pieces. And it, and it to me was really the perfect way of beginning to reincorporate that. And 
as so many of us come from households where we were raised on the standard American diet, I'm curious what your thoughts are for us to be able to reach into our own wisdom, especially in pregnancy when I've noticed a lot of intuition is heightened, and to begin to follow and trust some of these cravings. Yeah, so it's it's a um it's a twofold conversation on mindful eating and then also cravings because I think with cravings we have to be cautious with how we interpret them particularly based on like our our baseline of our food intake. I think for people who have a baseline of consuming a uh, whole unprocessed as I call them real foods, those cravings might be a little bit more reliable. Whereas somebody who is not quite there yet, or maybe barely eating any whole foods, cravings for Doritos is a response to the brilliant work that food scientists have done at these big food companies, literally designing their foods to hijack your brain with their very specific combination of salt and fat and fake flavor compounds and sugar and, you know, MSG and whatever else to give you that like dopamine hit and like really make you crave more, but it's not actually like a craving for Doritos. There's a, there's a book called the Dorito effect and I can't remember yeah, the author. Dorito I effect and Rob Wolf's wired to eat goes into some of this stuff as well. Um, so we have to make sure that we're at least separating our cravings from like, I have been hijacked by the food industry's very brilliant food science engineering. <laughs> that craving for Doritos very well could be like your body needs some more carbohydrates or you need more salt, or it could be there's a bag of Doritos sitting around and um, maybe there's a special emotional comfort that you get from having Doritos around, takes you back to your childhood, whatever it is. And a lot of those things do actually also come up in pregnancy. So keep an eye on that. But if you're having, some women notice like very distinct cravings for things that they may be lacking in. And I hear this most commonly among those who are pretty nutritionally deficient. I didn't notice a whole bunch of super strong cravings during pregnancy, maybe because I've been doing the mindful eating whole food thing for so long prior to getting pregnant that a, I didn't judge them as cravings. It was like, I want, I really want citrus. I'm going to get some citrus or I really want egg salad or I really want beets or I really want to have a hamburger right now or have, you know, you know, make some fries in the oven, whatever it was. Like I didn't necessarily judge it as like, Oh, that's a craving. I just sort of like rolled with it. But also the things that I was craving, maybe outside of like first trimester nausea phase, because that's its own weird animal <laughs> where you might crave bizarre things. Salt and vinegar chips really hit the spot when I was super <laughs> nauseous and couldn't couldn't keep anything else down. It was like I needed that salt, crunchy, sour, Acid. high potassium. I'm like, you're kind of getting lots of electrolytes in there. So maybe that's why. Who knows? But it, you you have to kind of think about what's going on. So yes, like it's, it's great to kind of follow the cravings, particularly if they're like driving you to whole foods. The vegan example that I started going into, I've heard from some, there's one lady I, I didn't interview with her. I didn't realize at the time that 
she was vegan, which is surprising. Usually vegans don't invite me on, um, for obvious reasons. Uh, and she was saying that, uh, she had really been craving, um, bone broth, eggs, and I believe it was shellfish. And I was just like shocked because when you go through all the possible nutrients that you're most likely lacking in on a vegan diet, those would really hit pretty much all the marks. Arguably you could throw organ meats in there, but if you're talking like oysters, clams, mussels, that fills in a lot of the gaps, the same gaps that organ meats um, fill in. So I was like, wow, how interesting that your body like wanted those things. And many vegetarians report to me that they had an overwhelming desire to eat meat during pregnancy that they could not ignore. Like they had to have the hamburger. Now, whether that was coupled with guilt and remorse or just embracing that this is what my body needs is a different conversation often has to do with how well read they are on the topic or not, or how conditioned they have been to believe that, you know, meat is good or bad or whatever. But there's some of these things that are like, you can't avoid it. The need for salt is another big one. Like we need a lot more minerals and and electrolytes, including salt in pregnancy. When you have that higher fluid volume, you, you need salt to go with it. Like if you go to the ER uh, dehydrated, they don't give you pure distilled water. It's always a saline solution at the very least. So you need that salt to, to hold on to and, and carry sufficient like fluid balance in your system. And so the whole like craving of um, salty snack foods, pickles, olives, salami, and, and deli meats that they tell you not to eat too, um, all those salty things is probably, probably for good reason as well. And we should listen to those. Um, the one final caveat I also just want to throw out is that one of the things with mindful eating that gets kind of controversial is people either believe, often believe that the mindful eating idea means that you just like food is just some sort of free for all. And like, okay, I really want a donut. So I'm going to eat a donut, you know, it's like, and that's, that's okay too. Like, it's okay to like occasionally eat some not so healthy food. I'm, I'm not saying that I'm some sort of saint over here, but part of mindful eating is also listening to and like learning from the various responses that your body has to different foods over time. So you can fully embrace that that donut is delicious. And sometimes you're going to have a donut and you can also acknowledge. I remember the last time I had a donut, I felt this way and my stomach was really upset. And I have that weird oil slick on the roof of my mouth from the trans fats that they fried it in and my energy tanked and I like needed to take a nap and like, I felt awful And so maybe I really want a donut, but actually maybe I'll go for this higher quality baked good that's not made in, you know, junky fats. Or maybe I'll have a donut, but I'll have just a little bit, see how I do, kind of like come back to that later, see if I really want to eat the rest of it. Because at a certain point, when you start feeling really good after eating food, it's kind of hard to eat garbage again. Oh, yeah. Because you feel so bad. Like it's not worth your energy being just completely awful. I'm reminded of this every year around Halloween. It's almost Halloween and all the candy that's around. I'm at the point now in my life where like Halloween candy has zero power over me. There is no interest in eating Halloween candy. This will sound shocking to people. Like I'm some sort of like, Ooh, she has excellent willpower. It's like, no, I feel like garbage when I have a blood sugar spike and crash. I yes. do not enjoy the hyper palatability of the food. Hyper palatable is like 
disgustingly sweet, like hurts my teeth and gives me a sore throat. It's disgusting. It tastes like chemicals. If I want a peanut butter cup, I'm going to get a proper peanut butter cup with like dark chocolate that's sweetened appropriately and like actually tastes like chocolate, not this garbage, you know, I'm picking on Reese's and people are going to be really mad. That used to be my favorite candy, believe me. But it doesn't taste good. Like over time, those things actually just taste like chemicals. (laughs) So in other words, mindful eating and like nutritional common sense can overlap and that can affect your your relationship with cravings as well. You may identify like, I feel so much better when I get a protein sufficient breakfast. And that also tends to make my cravings a lot less during the day. And then when I have a craving, I don't want to eat the whatever the package thing that I used to eat for my childhood because I feel really awful after eating that. And then so it kind of is a snowball effect where it, it works for you, not against you. I just want to throw that out there because it's like, I feel like the mindful eating thing has been really hijacked by the people promoting like lots of junk food, like, Oh, just mindful eating all foods fit, whatever. And I agree with that to some perspective. There's really nothing that's completely off limits food wise in my life. It's just, if I do have something, I typically know this is going to make me feel like garbage because I've had plenty of practice eating you know, processed junk foods and they're fun every once in a while, but they hold less and less power over you over time when you eat whole foods that actually have real robust, rich flavors that leave you feeling well. They just, they don't hold power over you over time. And this is like, you know, I'm like 20 plus years into this journey. So I'm not saying this happens overnight. If you introduce some sort of like, I mean, salt and vinegar chips are a perfect example. (laughs) I love salt and vinegar chips. So if you introduce those into my house, like, yeah, I'm going to eat more of those than I normally would if they weren't in my house, but they still hold less power over me than they did five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, because I just have acclimated to whole foods for the most part. I think that's what I enjoyed about your hunger awareness exercises that you have people check back in with their body. How does this food make you feel now? How does it make you feel a little bit down the road? And I think that's part of developing that muscle of really identifying what foods are working for your body is feeling the effects of them one hour later, three hours later, the next day even, and how it shifts your mood and your gut and your anxiety levels as your blood sugar rises and falls. And so I really appreciated that because I do think that we can begin to develop some of these feedback mechanisms that are innate within an organism. And I, I want to go back to Fred Provenza again. He talks about when what happens when sheep eat something that makes them nauseous. They don't return to it. They don't want to be nauseous. And you notice this with, with uh, wild birds, even. You put out bird food and they like peck around the GMO corn. <laughs> yes. The GMO yes. corn. They eat everything else, especially the sunflower seeds and the millet. Especially the they sunflower don't seeds. Want, they don't nope. want the corn. It's hilarious. They know. They know. They know yeah. and their bodies know. And so I, I really, I appreciate you exploring that and, and how it's, it's kind of a tricky balance that we have to find, especially yeah. as we've been conditioned. I think humans have probably the weakest muscle for that. Oh, I you agree. You think about wild animals like bears, for example, that are habituated to breaking into trash cans and eating. 
if they haven't been taught to hunt well by, by their mom for whatever reason, it's kind of a lost cause. (laughs) And I feel like we have to, we have to kind of think of ourselves in that way. Like we haven't been raised in a, a a traditional human, uh, you know, appropriate diet. Yeah. Yeah. We can't, we're, we're not raised in an environment like we were like hundreds of years ago. And so it's almost like you have to work just that much harder to dehabituate yourself from those hyper palatable foods. And those tastes are set in utero. Some of that is, some of our taste for food is set in utero. So when we're going back to that moment in time that you talked about in the 80s and 90s, these hyperpalatable foods, we have a lot working against us. We're sort of working at a deficit. Right, right. This has been this has been such a pleasure, and I I want to highlight. There's a lot that I'm sure I left on the table, but you have. You have so many beautiful interviews. The book is so incredibly comprehensive. And so I want to point people that way, both to Real Food for Pregnancy and Real Food for Gestational Diabetes and your Instagram, where you really dive into some of the research and pull out these points for people to find. And I, I'm just so appreciative to your work for building the next generation of humans that are going to have a different view of food and that their bodies are going to be set up in utero for success and, and just what a beautiful thing that is. Well, thank you. And it's been a pleasure, really interesting conversation and good questions. And um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. Where can people find you? So you've already mentioned uh, Instagram. So my handle is Lily Nichols RDN and my website's actually the same. So it's lilynicholsrdn.com. There you'll find links to my books, where to find them, the differences between the two books. Click on the book tab and that will that will give you all the information on that. I give away the first chapter for free as well. So if you're curious about that sample meal plan comparison, that's actually included in that free chapter download that's on my site. A lot of people like that because it can get all into the weeds, uh, but seeing the numbers in black and white really um, puts it into perspective for you. That's also where my um, blog lives. So there's 250 plus articles up there, um, many of which we touched on today. The protein one, especially, I think is a must, must read. I'll, I'll link to that one. Goes into a lot of different amino acids. You know, when you write a book and, and years go by and you learn new information, you look back and go, oh, darn, I should have touched on that. Mm, I should have touched on that. So my blog gives me a chance to explore some of those things as well. So yes, I talk about glycine, but I talk about a lot of different amino acids and their role in um, prenatal health, some of which I wish I had included in the book, but you know, live and learn. And there's also some information and research that comes out yeah, like later that you just yes. don't have like that follow-up choline study that, you know, followed the kids to age seven. We didn't yet have that data when I wrote the book, we only had the the data into toddlerhood. So those are the types of things that I like to go into in more detail, like in the research briefs on my Instagram, um, on my website and blog posts on webinars with the Women's Health Nutrition Academy. And I can, I can expand in different areas short of a, a second ed- edition, which I guess will probably eventually I was happen. About that. Yeah. Don't hold me to it. I got young kids <laughs> in the house still. Yeah, it was a pleasure. So thanks for having me on. Thank you for taking the time. It was such a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Groundwork Podcast. 
If what you heard today resonated with you, may I ask that you share it with your friends or leave us a review? This helps others find Groundwork. If you're looking for more, you can find us at groundworkcollective.com and at Groundwork Collective on Instagram. I would like to give a very special thank you to China and Seth Kent of the band All Right, All Right for clips from the beautiful song Over the Edge from their album, The Crucible. You can find them at All Right, All Right on Instagram and wherever you listen to music. <laughs>